Mourning the loss of their mother, two girls invite her spirit into the home. But is that all that enters? A babysitting gig that is supposed to be child's play becomes just that. A night for tricks or treats ends more bitter than sweet. there campers here we are at episode three of campfire stories in this show the stories will center on themes of horror suspense true crime and even the supernatural content may be potentially triggering including sexual trauma sexual assault rape and childhood sexual abuse campers under the age of 13 are not encouraged to listen this episode i have a friend of mine joining me her name is colleen Say hi, Colleen. Hello. Okay, so here's the deal, Colleen. I'm going to tell you each story. You can react however you see fit. You can comment and ask questions. At the end of the episode, I'm going to ask you which of the stories really happened and which you think didn't. So are you ready, Colleen? Absolutely. Let's go. I'm excited. Awesome. Here's story one, The Walls. Though it was the darkest day of their lives, the sun was shining brighter than it had all month. It's because heaven is welcoming another angel, Richard whispered to his daughters, Emily and Amy, as he pulled them close to him. The Barnes family held hands as they watched the casket of their beloved wife and mother lowered into the earth. The cancer had finally taken her. However distraught Richard was, he knew that he had to be strong for the sake of his girls and he knew that there would be challenges along the way to feeling whole again, like a family. Several months would pass before the barns would fall into a routine. Richard worked long hours, but the girls were both in high school and mature enough to mind themselves. Emily and Amy were adjusting to life without their mother, but they still had so many questions about her death. They wanted to understand why she had to go so soon. Was it peaceful in the end? Was she really watching over them like everyone had been telling them from church? Most of all, they just wanted to feel her presence. And what better way to do so than to turn to the Ouija board? You know something, I've never actually used a Ouija board. Have you, Colleen? I haven't, and I feel like that sounds super scary, but I'm excited to learn more about this story. I also, um, I wanted to do that, like, light as a feather, stiff as a board thing from the craft, but I didn't have friends that were cool enough and wanted to do it with me, or, you know. Oh, boy. I mean, I've actually, (laughs) I've actually done that before, and it does work. It's really freaky. That's crazy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe we should try it, me, you, Anna, and Nicole one day. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a good time, and then we can freak out about it. All right, anywho, let's get back to the story. So Emily and Amy decide to play Ouija in order to break into the spirit world and speak to their mom. They lit some candles, set up the board, and held hands as they asked question 
After question, after question, not much happened. The Ouija did its thing. But when they asked Ouija if their mom was there in the room, it responded yes. And when they asked if Ouija would let them speak to her, before it could answer, the girl started to hear banging coming from the walls. The lights flickered and a gust of wind blew out the candles, blackening the room. Emily and Amy screamed. Even though they wanted to speak to their mother, deep down, they never really thought it would actually work. After returning home from school the following afternoon, Emily gets a phone call from a boy. He tells her that his name is Daryl and that her number was given to him by one of her classmates that they have a mutual relationship with. It was the 80s, so this was something that was com- wasn't completely unheard of. Daryl asks Emily if she would like to go out with him. Emily is super excited about the offer, and after the night that she had with her sister, she could really use a mental break. The two agree to go to a local burger joint that wasn't far from Emily's house. On the day of the date, Emily arrives early and grabs a seat at one of the picnic tables waiting for Daryl to show up. A young man shows up and proceeds to sit with her, but he's not exactly as he described he was. He was not the tall, athletic, attractive, blonde guy as he described to her, but instead was very much unkept, unattractive, and had very dark, matted hair. Emily was a sweet girl and decided that even though he completely catfished her, she would give it a go. She would 100% regret that decision once she started talking to him. He seemed to be fixated on her mother's death and berated her with questions about it. An hour into the date, Emily had had enough. That girl's a saint for lasting that long. Like, I think that's pretty weird that you're asking this girl on your first date about her dead mom. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Emily, so ever so smoothly, decides to get up from the table and she just kind of leaves him there. When she arrives back at the house, Emily unloads the horrible date that she had that afternoon to her sister, but immediately moves past it. Even though the girls were completely freaked out about what happened the night before, Amy suggests that they try to speak to their mom again, and this time to stick around and listen to what she has to say. So once again, the girls set up the Ouija board placed their hands on the guide, and began to ask it questions. Like before, they began to hear banging coming from the walls. They heard it to their left, they heard it to their right, from the windows to the walls. They did this for several nights. When they would come back from school, they would notice that things were out of place and furniture would be rearranged. Then things started getting weirder. One night after the girls asked their questions, They heard the banging come from below them as if it were coming from the basement. Emily grabbed a knife and she and Amy went down to the basement to check it out. In what appeared to be blood, the words, I'm in your room, come and find me, was written on a wall. The girls ran back up the stairs and across the street to a neighbor's house and begged for them to call their father home. Richard rushed home takes a look around the place and ultimately decides that the girls were just seeking a little attention and doing it themselves. He hated that he had to be away all of the time, but it was the only way he could support them. Anywho, things eventually settle down that night and the girls go to bed. 
over the next couple of weeks, all is well in the house, and the girls haven't seen or heard any strange things. That is until they started hearing the banging noise coming from Emily's room. Knife in hand, the girls walk up to the bedroom, and written on the walls in what looks like blood are the words, I'm back. Find me if you can. Once again, the girls ran from the home to the neighbors and asked to call their father. Someone is written on the walls again. Richard is annoyed, but he leaves work and heads to the house. When he arrives, he heads straight into the house and up to Emily's room. And just as the girl said, there had been words on the wall, but it wasn't blood. It was ketchup. Unamused that the girls had taken things this far, nonetheless still concerned, Richard takes a look around the house again. From downstairs, he hears some commotion, and it's coming from his bedroom. When he walks into the room, the first thing he sees are more words written on a wall. They say, marry me. Something scurries behind him. He turns and chases the figure down the hall and into another room. Standing there with a hatchet in hand is this boy in makeup and wearing the wedding dress of his deceased wife. Richard lunges at the kid and struggles with him for a bit to get the hatchet away from him, but he slips away. Richard exits the home and he cannot believe that the girls were telling him the truth the whole time. The police were called and when they searched the house, they discovered a small door hidden behind Emily's wardrobe. When they opened it, they found the boy in the crawl space. As he was removed from the home, and taken down the driveway in handcuffs, Emily and Amy watched from the curb. Emily's jaw dropped when she realized that the boy was the same boy that she had that awkward date with several weeks earlier. It was Daryl. Oh, dang. It was wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. But like, I kid you not, the whole time I was like, wow, this story is actually genuinely kind of scary because I'm like terrified of Ouija boards. I think that's just, oh, so scary. Um, or just like supernatural things in that. Like, granted, I love a good supernatural thriller, but definitely super creepy that the kid was in the house. Like, oh my God. I know, right? I don't know what I would have done, but I think... Uh, Richard's a better man than I am. I am. I'm surprised he didn't go searching, ripping things apart, trying to find this kid. Oh, I know. Especially where his daughter went on a date with him. Mm, nope. No way. All right. So we are going to jump into story two then. Uh, this one is called The Dummy. Tamara and James Johnson are young parents who remain busy balancing their careers as well as their five-year-old daughter, Cheyenne. They hadn't had a date night since she was born, and though they adored her, it was definitely time that they took a night off and took care of themselves. This date had been planned for months, but the two were starting to debate whether or not they should go. See, Cheyenne has been having nightmares recently, and it has been difficult to keep her down. 
so they were hesitant to get a sitter, especially since it would be the first time they've had to do it. Also, the babysitter was only 14, and they weren't sure that they should trust her. Though they had their doubts, Kamari, the babysitter, had come highly recommended by Tamara's sister, and she knew Cheyenne. Plus, by the time Kamari would even get to the house, they would have already fed her and put her to bed. So they called up the sitter. Kamari arrives at the house and James runs her through the routine. He tells her that Cheyenne has been waking up the past few nights in tears. She's afraid to sleep in her room, but they are really trying to get her to get over her fears. So to make sure that she puts her back to bed if she does get up throughout the night. They show her a list of emergency contact information that they leave on the counter and the two head out for the evening. Kamari reassures them that everything will be all good and that they could trust that Cheyenne was in good hands. The Johnsons go on their way and Kamari sits at the kitchen island counter and pulls out a math book from her bag and begins to do some homework. Needing a little snack, she goes to the fridge and grabs a cheese stick and a soda. When she closes the door, Cheyenne is standing there. Kamari jumps out of her skin. She gives the girl a hug, says her hellos, and then tells her she needs to go back to bed. Cheyenne tells her that she doesn't want to go back to her room and asks if she could just stay with her. Kamari really wouldn't have minded if the girl stayed out in the living area with her, but she wanted to respect the parents' wishes and told her that she had to go back to bed and walk Cheyenne back to her room. Upon entering the bedroom, Kamari notices a weird four-foot clown doll slouched in the chair nope. in the corner of the room. Big nope. <laughs> Big nope. <laughs> it was creepy. Nope. But Cheyenne didn't seem bothered by it. But, I, I mean, <laughs> I think we all had that doll or like action figure that was a little busted and ugly. Mm. I had... <laughs> I had one or two that had like hair missing because they needed a haircut or like magic marker makeup and I thought they looked great. So if that little girl wants to dress her my size Barbie as a clown, just leave her alone. All right, well, <laughs> I would throw it out the window, but that's okay. To each his own. Anyways, Cheyenne climbed into bed, stuck her thumb in her mouth, and rolled to her side while Kamari rubbed her back until she drifted off. Once she felt that Cheyenne had been in a deep enough sleep, Kamari returned to her homework. The next couple of hours are pretty chill. Kamari decides to watch a movie to pass the time. But everything is always good until it's not good. Just as it was getting to the best part, Kamari hears a scream coming from Cheyenne's room, followed by a thump and in a panic, bolts down the hall to investigate it. When she goes into the room, the little girl is shaking under the covers. Kamari goes to the side of the bed to comfort her and nearly trips over the clown doll that is now laying partway under the bed. She pulls back the covers and sees that Cheyenne is in tears and she is pale as a ghost. Kamari asks Cheyenne what is wrong. The girl stutters. 
nothing. It was clear that it had to be something. I see you tried to hide your clown doll under the bed, Kamari says. I didn't put him there, Cheyenne replies. Kamari cannot help but to subconsciously roll her eyes when she hears this, but continues to try to get to the root of the problem. She asks the girl if the doll is too scary. Cheyenne slowly shakes her head up and down, but only sometimes, she says with a half smile. Sometimes he's really nice and brings me presents, like Santa. Uh, nope. <laughs> I don't think no. <laughs> you don't want your dolls bringing you presents? No, no way. Nope. <laughs> if they give me a gift, I gift them the trash. <laughs> Kamari thought this was weird, but if there was anything that she has learned since she started babysitting this last year, is that kids are fucking weird. Since it appeared that Cheyenne was feeling better, Kamari lays Cheyenne back down in her bed. Before she exits the room, she asks the girl if she wants her to put the doll back in the chair. He can do it, she says, I'm sorry, and rolls what? back to her side. He can do it? He can walk? He can do it himself. He has a conscience. Okay, all right. Kamari backs out of the room, shuts the door, and returns to the living room to finish up her movie. At the roll of the credits, a faint sniffling can be heard from Cheyenne's room. Oh my god, the poor girl's been crying this whole time. Slowly opening the door, Kamari peeks her head in and asks if she's okay. Noticing that the clown doll is now back in the chair again, she asks the girl why had she been crying and was it the scary doll? Cheyenne looks over at the doll and back at Kamari, almost as if she was getting confirmation from the doll that it was okay to respond. Then replies softly. At this point, Kamari's really upset. This little girl is clearly terrified of this doll and she cannot understand why her parents would keep it in the house. She asks how long had the doll, and she tells her that it hasn't been super long, but that has slept in her room three times. It's no wonder the girl has been having nightmares. Her parents probably forced a stupid, creepy-ass doll on her. Now, angry that parents would do that to a kid, Kamari decides to interrupt date night and give them a call. She tells the Johnsons that they need to come home, that their daughter is distraught and likely traumatized over the life-size clown doll they have sitting in the chair by her bed. Kamari's anger turns to fear when she is told that Cheyenne doesn't have a life-size clown doll. What? <laughs> Literal <Before> chills. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, no one wants to hear that. Nope. Before she ends the call, she tells the Johnsons to call the police. Kamari immediately dashes towards Cheyenne's room and plows through the door to find the creepy clown doll cradling the little girl in its arms, attempting to make an exit through the window. Oh my God. The doll pulls a small knife from the pants of his pockets, presses his gloved hand across Cheyenne's mouth, and the knife against her neck and tells Kamari that if she were to come any closer, that he would kill her. In shock, Kamari obeys. The clown slips out of the window and begins to make a run for it. Fortunately, he would not be able to get far. Just then, police arrived to the house and were able to quickly take the doll down 
with little physical harm to Cheyenne. It turns out that the doll was actually a little man, like a little person. He was a twice convicted pedophile, mm. sneaking into unsuspected homes with oh my clown God. costume was his MO. Nope. Nope. Yes, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> That's so creepy. <laughs> no. That's creepy. so creepy. Thank God I don't babysit anymore. Otherwise, that's all I'd be thinking about. I tried babysitting like once and it didn't work out. It's, it's not for me. And um, <laughs> this is also, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not a parent yet. Like, I'm just way too paranoid. You're telling me I have to have the wherewithal to know to make sure that all my kids' toys are actually toys. Yeah, seriously, and not people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. That is, oh my God, insane. <laughs> there was this one time when I was little, I had a little like, well, it was kind of large, like backpack sized Pikachu doll, like when I was like five, Pikachu. right? And I was convinced that the thing was like looking at me and like moving its eyes. So I opened my window and I threw it out the window. Oh, God. <laughs> I was like five years old. The next day my dad was like, why is the Pikachu outside the window? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't like it. Throw it in the trash. <laughs> oh, so the clown doll wouldn't have stood a chance. It wouldn't have kidnapped you. Oh, no way. I would have thrown that thing out the window so fast, so so hard. And it probably would have hurt the man inside. Oh, <laughs> I can even pick him up. I know. <laughs> I'm not sure that you could. Not probably not. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we're going to go on to our final story. It is called Trick or Treat. It was the night of Halloween. The Davis children, Johnny and Samantha, were beyond excited. I mean, of course they were. Halloween is one of the only holidays that I get excited about, that and Thanksgiving. And nope, it's not for the candy or the costume parties. It's for the horror movies, of course. Do you like Halloween? Um, I do like Halloween. I, I actually don't like horror movies, though, but I really enjoy psychological thrillers. So that's interesting. <laughs> I know a girl who hates Halloween, and I don't even understand how. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. I'm just like, what What happened to you that you don't like Halloween? Honestly, Halloween's so creative. Okay. Anyways, so Johnny and Samantha are excited about Halloween. They are twins, and ever since they were born, they always had matching costumes. Last year, they were two peas in a pod. The year before, I know. The year before, they were cat dogs. And this year, they were going to be left Twix and right Twix. And oh. their parents were going to be the Twix brothers. You know, from the commercial. You ever seen the yeah. commercial? Yeah. Yeah. It was cute. It was cute. While the kids were in the best of moods, Mr. Davis, Ralph, he was feeling lower than low. Unbeknownst to his family, he had recently lost his job. He had lost the house. And he was about to lose the car. They were over $100,000 in debt, and he was running out of options. But tonight was Halloween, and it wasn't the time to dwell on it. Now was the time for family. So 
Ralph put on a brave face and helped his children get into their costumes. Before they were to head out and do their trick-or-treating, the family went to the home of their neighbors and close friends, the Bartlett's, to have dinner. The family also had two children, Austin and Jake, and they were going to all head out together. They also had adorable costumes. One was a jar of peanut butter and the other was a jar of jelly, and their parents were each slices of bread. Oh my God, adorable. (laughs) After dinner, the kids grabbed their candy bags and peels and raced through the front door, eagerly waiting for their parents to follow. Once outside, they formulated a plan on which neighborhoods to go to and which houses to approach. If you grew up poor, you knew that you had to go to the wealthy neighborhoods to get better candy and full bars. Austin, Jake, Samantha, and Johnny all huddled at the top of the stairs of the first home. Samantha rang the bell, and when it opened in unison, they shouted, trick or treat, smell my feet, give me something good to eat. They were greeted by a lovely woman who allowed them to dig through the candy bowl and grab their favorites. The next few houses were much like the first. The kids rang the bell, sang their tune, and received their candy. There was this one house, however, that was very dark. No lights on or anything. Nothing about it said that trick-or-treaters were welcomed or encouraged to stop there. But Ralph said, why not try? So they did. And to no one's surprise, no one was home. All but Ralph continued on down the street and on towards a new house. When Mrs. Davis turned to speak to her husband, here he was running up towards them, waving some candy in his hand. He told them that after they had walked away, someone had come to the door and handed him five pieces of candy. He placed one in each of the four children's bags and then gave another kid the other one who was passing by. Trick-or-treating had come to an end. The kids had enough candy to last them a month, but more like a week, the way kids eat candy. The group headed back to the Bartlett's home. All of the kids, with the exception of Samantha, who had passed out from exhaustion, immediately grabbed a spot on the floor and dumped their candies so that they could sort and trade amongst each other as their parents watched, checking to make sure that nothing out of the ordinary was mixed in. Johnny went straight for a pixie stick. His father helped him to open it, and Johnny tilted his head back and poured the powder onto his tongue. But when Johnny tasted it, it was not the sugary sweetness he expected. Instead, it was bitter. Ralph went to the kitchen to get his son a glass of Kool-Aid to help wash it down. Moments later, Johnny started screaming in agony. He was holding his stomach and curled in the fetal position, claiming that it hurt so much. Everyone in the home started to panic, and Mrs. Bartlett grabbed the phone and called 911 and pleaded that an ambulance arrive quickly. Ralph shouted over the phone, I think something was in the pixie stick. When paramedics arrived, the little boy was barely clinging on to life. By the time he was placed in the ambulance, he had already been pronounced dead. Officers had also been dispatched to the residence. When they asked what had happened, they were all too shocked and distraught to respond with anything other than, I don't know. They each walked them through their day and into the night. Mr. Davis pointed out that it must have been the candy that he got from the house that, um, and that usually they were so careful about checking. 
The officers had Rolf explain more about this house. He told them that no one had answered at first, but he went back to try again. Someone did open. However, he didn't see the homeowner's face or anything, that they had stuck out their arm and just handed him the five pixie sticks. He told them all of the kids had them and that he even gave one to one of the kids from the neighborhood. Police immediately removed all of the pixie sticks from the home and were also able to recover the one from the other child before he consumed it. But they found that Mr. James' story sounded off. They absolutely did not believe it. And when they did a little digging, they quickly saw that he was in severe financial hardship. They saw that he had lost his job. They saw that he no longer owned his home and they saw that he was about to lose his car. They also found a $60,000 life insurance policy on both of his children. Ralph was prepared to kill both of his kids in order to unburden himself. What? Had Samantha not fallen asleep before she could eat the candy, she likely would have met the same fate as her brother. It's not messed up. That's real messed up. I honestly thought it was going to be... So it sounds like he hired somebody to give him the, the candy. Oh, no. He didn't hire anybody. He just lied. Oh, okay. I must have missed him. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just lied. That's crazy, though. Yep. That's what we do. Jeez. You know? I remember, like, the last year that I went trick-or-treating, I don't know, I was probably, like, 13, 14 years old, there was something on the news saying that, like, be careful with your candy because I guess people were finding like in later years they were finding like parts of razor blades or like needles and Kit Kats. Yeah, that's crazy. That's actually terrifying. It is terrifying, but it's actually like an urban legend. Oh. Yes. So, you've heard all three of our urban legend stories. Are there people really living in the walls? Can dolls come to life? Should you check your candy before you eat it? Yes, always. <laughs> well, and then eat the ones that. <laughs> and then eat the ones that are like bad, but not actually bad, but they're your, your favorites. So. <laughs> oh my God. So what do you think, Colleen? <laughs> do you know which is the real story or stories? Is there anyone that you're like, no way that didn't happen? Um, I confidently think that the candy story is true because of this little story I just shared from the last time I went trick-or-treating and there was like literally stuff on the news about people putting razor blades and needles in candy, which is super scary. So literally always check your candy. Um, that even now, still as an adult, like that still, that thought process goes through my mind whenever I see a Kit Kat. And I'm like, nope, check it first, make sure it's okay. Um, <laughs> so I confidently think the candy one is true for Halloween. And then I feel like the clown one could be true, but also, I don't know, because three days is a long time to be in a, a costume in a house because you need like food and water to survive. So I think I'm going to go with the person in the house. The first story and the last story, I think those two are true. And I think the second one is false. 
Yeah, the walls and trick-or-treat are the true stories of this week's episode. While the names have been changed and the stories dramatized, the facts remain the same. In 1986, in Townsend, Massachusetts, yes, right in our home state, Daniel LaPlante stalked and terrorized the Andrews family. He lived in the walls for an unknown length of time, but it could have been a couple of months as empty food containers and clothes that had belonged to the family were found in the space uh, which was designed in a way that he could go from room to room. Some say that there were peepholes where he could watch the family. LaPlante was just 16, so he went to juvenile detention for just under a year and was then transferred to adult court where his mother was able to post his bail. Sadly, a few months later, he would go to a neighbor's home with a gun, rape a pregnant woman, shoot her in the head, and then drown each of her two young children in separate bathtubs. Jesus. Yep. A manhunt would ensue, and upon his arrest, he was said to be laughing hysterically. And on Halloween in 1974, a man poisoned and killed his eight-year-old son with a pixie stick laced with cyanide in order to collect on a $60,000 life insurance policy he had taken out on him. At the time, a panic developed that people would attempt to slip things into candy, such as razor blades, needles, and poison. So Ronald Clark O'Brien decided to capitalize on that fear. This case, and I love that you mentioned the whole razor blades and thing, because this is where I'm saying it's an, it's an urban legend, that thing. Because mm-hmm. this case is one of two documented cases of candy tampering. And in both cases, it was not done by a stranger. So there's never actually been any kind of case where someone has tampered with candy. Interesting. Yep. Just these two. And they were done by both by like family members. That's so messed up. I mean, tampering with candy in general is so messed up. But more, I think a little bit more crazy that it's done you know, intentional harm, family to family. Like, that's just, oh, God, so disturbing. Yeah. And then the dummy, that was actually based on a fake story that circulated, like, six years ago. It was all over social media. Um, It looked pretty legit, too. It had, like, a mugshot of some unfortunate guy that was involved in some completely unrelated case, but... It was, like, really, it was captivating at the moment because it really was everywhere. Oh, my God. Wow. That's wild. I must have missed that one. It's it's fine. It happens. (laughs) (laughs) Social media is not the best place to be getting your news, especially when it's false. Yeah, yeah. But I do remember, and I don't know if you recall, when, you know, there were, I don't, I forget if it was true or not, but there were, like, killer clowns running around different states doing crazy things. Oh, um, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I think, I think that's some urban legend as well. That I think I watched a documentary about it. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was as well. I just remember, like, it came, that whole story, theory, whichever, um, came out while I was like a sophomore in college and I remember like 
you remember um, Yik Yak? It's like <laughs> one of those like social media things, like Twitter kind of, um, but it's all anonymous. And so people were posting on that saying like, oh, there's a killer clown on campus. So I was literally like walking around campus <laughs> with like a little pen in my pocket just in case for protection. <laughs> I, don't <know> <laughs> I don't know what I thought a pen was going to do, but <laughs> I was okay and I was safe and I'm still here. So that's good. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you didn't have to use that pen. Me too. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening, and Colleen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, some exciting developments over here. Campfire Stories is now on Patreon, so if you like the show, head over there and search for Campfire Stories Podcast. Your support allows me to get you more content. Also, please don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help it grow, kind of like air does to a campfire. That was a bad joke. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. Thanks. I'm my, I'm, I'm my biggest fans. <laughs> Again, thanks for listening, and I will see you in two weeks. Thank you.